I want to talk about sports and the Cold War. And this is the American Sport Podcast, so I feel morally and patriotically obligated and bound by tradition to tell the story of the miracle on ice, the, the 1980 Olympic hockey game when a bunch of scrappy American college kids, they beat the mighty Soviet Red Army team. Do you believe in miracles, the upset of all upsets, USA? USA. But I don't want to retell that well-known story. And, well, on this podcast, I'm the decider, Dagnabbit, and today I get what I want, unlike most days in my life. So I'm going to start this discussion of sport in the Cold War with the incredible story of a water polo match in 1956. This is a story that doesn't even involve the United States, or at least not right away. And for this story, we go to Australia. We go to the 1956 Melbourne Summer Olympic Games. And these were the first Olympic Games in the Southern Hemisphere. So though these were summer games, they took place in late November and early December, right? the Australian summer. And so this means they took place at the end of a chaotic and turmoil-filled year. 1956 was a year of international tensions. The, the Cold War was escalating. There was the Suez Crisis in Egypt. There was the Soviet invasion of Hungary. Hungarian reformers, they were calling for new political freedoms. They wanted to be able to speak openly and debate ideas. They were calling for the end of the Soviet domination of their political system. It was a moment of optimism and excitement about the future. You know, Hungary had been dominated by the Soviets since the end of World War II, and now it looked like true independence was around the corner. But then the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, he decided to crush this optimism. Khrushchev sent in the tanks. Soviet troops, they stormed through Budapest, and there was a bloody struggle. Over 2,500 Hungarians were killed. And this crackdown was occurring right as the nations of the world convened in Melbourne for the Olympic Games. And as fate would have it, as all this was happening back in Budapest, the water polo teams from these two nations, Hungary and the Soviet Union, they met in the pool for the semifinals of the Olympic water polo competition. And here's what happened. And this is incredible. Things were tense, of course, but the Soviet and Hungarian players, they embraced, they wished each other luck, and then they played a spirited but clean game. I don't even remember who won. I mean, no one does. It, it doesn't matter. It, it was the dignity of the sportsman that everyone remembers. And responding to the sportsmanship that these athletes had shown, Soviet and Hungarian leaders, they called for a truce on the streets of Budapest. They began a new round of negotiations. Inspired by their newfound respect for the Hungarians, because of that water polo match, the Soviets peacefully withdrew from Budapest and freedom came to Hungary. Sports had healed political wounds. Sport had made the world a better place. Nope, that's not what happened. 
I'm sorry to be the one to break it to you, but sports just do not have that power. This is what happened. The Soviets and the Hungarians, they did meet in the semifinals of the water polo competition. And the arena was filled with Hungarian Australians, and they waved Hungarian flags, and they jeered the Soviet players. The Hungarians, they got out to a 2-0 lead, and the Hungarian players, they started taunting the Soviets. They called them invaders. They called them murderers. And then all hell broke loose. In the final minute of the game, a, a Soviet player, tired of the verbal attacks, he swung a vicious elbow and split open the cheek of one of the Hungarian players, and the water in the pool, it turned red from the blood. Some of the Hungarian supporters from the crowd, they ran to the edge of the pool and they threatened to jump in and fight the Soviets. And the Australian police, they had to come in, surround the pool, and the match, it was ended early. The Hungarians were declared the winners. Fists flew and blood flowed was the headline in the Melbourne newspapers the next day. And then how about this? Those Hungarian water polo players? Well, they didn't want to return to Soviet-controlled Hungary. And the American government, it sensed an opportunity. American sports writers made contact with Hungarian athletes and asked them if they wanted to defect to the United States. One by one, Hungarian athletes began disappearing into the night, just walking out of the Olympic Village and into waiting cars driven by American CIA agents. 38 athletes in all, they were whisked away and hidden in safe houses throughout Melbourne. Then in late December, all 38 boarded a jet, they flew to San Francisco, arriving in the United States on Christmas Eve, 1956. That's when they began their new lives as Americans. And that is when the Soviet Union called the Americans kidnappers, and they blamed the United States for fanning the flames of the Cold War. This is American Sport. And I'm your host, Professor Matt Andrews. There was an awfully astute writer in London in the mid-20th century named George Orwell. Orwell once attended an international sporting competition. It was actually a soccer game between England and the Soviet Union. It was right after World War II. And Orwell was horrified by the win-at-all-costs mentality and the nationalist passions that this soccer game unleashed. He returned home from the stadium, sat down at his typewriter, and wrote, Serious sport has nothing to do with fair play. It is bound up with hatred, jealousy, boastfulness, disregard of all rules, and sadistic pleasure in witnessing violence. In other words, it is war minus the shooting. Well, nowhere did we see this war minus the shooting mentality more than in the athletic Cold War battles between the United States and the Soviet Union. And in 1944, an American political scientist, he coined a new term, superpower. A superpower, he said, is a nation that has great power plus great mobility of power. 
you know, a superpower is a nation that has the ability to project power and influence anywhere in the world. And at the end of World War II, this meant two nations. The United States, clearly. The only nation with the atomic bomb. You know, a nation that had been spared the physical destruction of the war and had successfully waged war in Europe and Asia. And it meant the Soviet Union. The nation that had endured the brutal Nazi storm during the war and whose army was now in position to exert its influence westward into Europe and southward into Asia. From the end of World War II to the start of the 1990s, the, the battle between these two superpowers, it dominated the globe. It, it's known as the Cold War. And the Cold War was many things. It was a battle to secure natural resources and access to economic markets. It was a contest for scientific breakthroughs. You know, it was an arms race to see which side could develop the most powerful weapons of mass destruction. It was a race to see who would be first to get a person into space and, and then a man on the moon. It was a military contest where American and Soviet soldiers, they waged battle in places like Korea and Vietnam, Afghanistan, though almost never directly against each other. And the Cold War was a sports competition. Every four years, it was the Olympic Games that provided a theater for the Cold War, where the athletes from the United States and the Soviet Union, they competed head to head and where the medal count provided another way to gauge which of these two superpowers was the most powerful of all. In the United States, it was us against them Russians. It was our way of life against theirs. When these Cold War athletic battles began, it was the head of the Olympics, an American named Avery Brundage. He said, sports and politics don't mix. He said, as soon as political tensions are introduced into the Olympic Games, the Olympic Games will be finished. How wrong he was. It was the opposite. Once Cold War politics came to the Games, I mean, once the tensions of the Cold War were put on display at the Olympic Games, the whole world was paying attention. The first Olympics of the Cold War era, they took place in 1948. Uh, the Olympic Games had been canceled in 1940 and 1944 due to the war. But now they were back in, in London, a, a city that had endured the Nazi air raids. They'd, they were one of the symbols of the Allied resistance. But things were tough in London. I mean, there was rubble everywhere in the months leading up to the games. The city was pockmarked by bombs and Londoners were dealing with an energy crisis and a food shortage. Teams were actually encouraged to bring their own food from home. I mean, there might not be enough food for the athletes in London. The Soviet Union did not participate in these games. They were still reeling from a war that had killed 21 million Soviet soldiers and citizens. And let me repeat that, 21 million. By contrast, the United States lost 600,000 soldiers. Not an insignificant number at all, but not 21 million either. With many nations still devastated by the war, it was the much healthier United States Olympic team that absolutely dominated the 1948 games. You know, the U.S. had not been invaded during the war. 
Diets were way better in the United States than anywhere else in the world. Americans were physically fit. They were prepared for the games. I mean, really unlike everyone else. It was in this context that a, a 17-year-old kid named Bob Matthias, he could graduate from a California high school in June and then win the Olympic decathlon a couple of months later. When asked what he was going to do to celebrate, he said, start shaving, I guess. But by the next Olympics, the whole vibe was different. The rest of the world was back on its feet. Global diets had improved. Athletes everywhere were stronger. But another reason 1952 was different is that the Soviet Union was there. The history of sport in the Soviet Union is very different than in the United States. The Soviets thought about sports differently than the Americans did. You know, at first, the leaders of the Soviet Union, they ignored international sports. Or a better way to put it, they rejected international sports. As the Soviet leaders saw it, international sports and the Olympic Games, these are the, 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 the frivolous playthings of the West, the, the capitalist West. You know, competition, the obsession over winning and setting records. These were the vices of nations with competitive capitalist systems, winners and losers. And so the Soviets said, we are not interested in these sports. International competition at the Olympics, that's what the Americans do. That's what the Nazis do. But after World War II, the Soviets changed their tune. After the war, they thought about how they could use sports to their advantage. In order to try to maximize their Cold War influence throughout the world, the Soviets began competing in international sports. And really, they began competing in international sports with one goal in mind, to defeat the United States, their Cold War rival, at the Olympic Games. Right after the war, the Soviets, they set up sports training sites across the country where they looked for young athletic talent. Soviet boys and girls, they showed off their gymnastic skills, their ice hockey skills, they threw the javelin and they put the shot. And the best and most promising young talent, a talent was sent to Moscow for advanced training, where these young Soviets could be molded into elite Olympic athletes. When word got out what the Soviets were doing, we Americans, we were outraged. We, we, we were horrified. You know, for Americans, this Soviet sports system was the perfect example of what was wrong with the Soviet Union. Here was a system in which individuals did not have free choice. Here was a system where individuals were told where to go and what to do by their government. But for the Soviets, this was exactly what the socialist system could achieve. Everyone pitching in, everyone doing their part, the government helping them develop whatever skill they possessed, helping them use that skill for the betterment of the nation. So here's the key idea at these Cold War Olympic Games. So let, let's, let's think about this for a second. On the one hand, we might argue that a victory in international sports is meaningless. Fine, that American can throw the javelin further and that Soviet is the best at the high jump. But so what? Who cares? But if you dig deeper, 
The question being answered at these Cold War Olympics is this. Who has the better system in which to create strong human beings? Which nation has the best system for maximizing human potential? Is it the Americans with a system based on individualism and, and competition, you know, capitalism? Or is it the Soviets with their socialist system in which centralized planning is emphasized, in which everything is directed by the state and athletes are said to represent the selfless essence of communism? Both sides, the Americans and the Soviets, they said that their system was best and they were going to prove it at the Olympic Games. So this was not just sports. These Cold War Olympic Games, they were referendums on the political system of each nation. It wasn't a javelin contest or a basketball game or a wrestling match. It was our way of life against theirs. The Soviets attended their first Olympic Games in the summer of 1952. These games were in Helsinki, Finland. And by 1952, the Cold War was red hot, or, or ice cold. I'm actually not sure how that goes. But by 1952, the Soviets, they had detonated their own atomic bomb. That, that superpower just got more powerful. At the start of the 1950s, the United States and the USSR, they found themselves on opposite sides of the Korean War. The US had soldiers in Korea. The Soviets, they were supplying the Chinese and the North Korean troops who were fighting the Americans. But by 1952, the world was caught up in an all-out struggle between the American way of life and the Soviet way of life. And then that struggle came to the Olympics. There was a widely read columnist for the New York Times, a guy named Arthur Daly. Just before these Olympic Games began, he gave his American readers a sense of what was at stake. Here's what he wrote. There will be 71 nations in the Olympics at Helsinki. The United States would like to beat all of them, but the only one that counts is Soviet Russia. The communist propaganda machine must be silenced. In sports, the Red Brothers have reached the put-up or shut-up stage. Let's shut them up. I will say it again. Well, Orwell said it first. War minus the shooting. The 1952 Helsinki Summer Olympics, they began. At the opening ceremony, there was the traditional parade of nations and the reciting of the Olympic oath. Next came a speech from a, a German college student. She, she walked to the podium and she spoke about global peace, about the, the horrors of atomic war. And she called on the United States and the Soviet Union to immediately destroy their atomic arsenals. She called herself the Peace Angel of Helsinki. And in her long flowing white dress, she began to run a lap around the Olympic track. It took a moment for the Olympic organizers to realize this person was not supposed to be there. She was an activist who had just snuck up to the microphone. You do this now at the Olympic Games and you get you know, tased from a drone. Security caught up to her and they quickly ushered her away. The American newspapers the next day called her a communist. They called her deranged. Though 
I gotta say, I don't know what's so deranged about calling for nuclear disarmament and world peace. And then there were the competitions, the Cold War competitions. Hey, look, other nations were there, of course. But the nations with the two strongest teams, by far, were the superpowers, the U.S. and the USSR. The American domination in past Olympic Games, it came from their victories in men's track and field and in swimming. And that's where many of the American medals came from here in Helsinki. But the Soviets, they came into their first Olympics having prepared for every event. Gymnastics, fencing, wrestling, weightlifting, everything. And where the Soviets really had the Americans' number, and where they will have it for the next few Olympic Games, it was in women's sports. The Soviets were way better in women's sports than the Americans were. And that's because the Soviets actually cared about women's sports. In the Soviet Union, they spent resources on women's athletics. There was no system for women's sports in the United States. There was no investment coming from the state. The, the colleges and the universities that turned out the great male athletes in the United States, they totally ignored female athletes. And now this sexism was going to hurt the United States in the medal count. Let's talk medal counts for a second. Nations measure themselves against other nations at the Olympic Games. And as the Olympics evolved, there was talk about the need for an official scoring system, a, a medal count system, to better be able to do this. And Olympic officials had always opposed medal counts. Winning, losing, it doesn't matter, they said. It's about the competition, so we will not count medals. But reporters in the Olympic committees from the powerful nations, they were doing it anyway. But there were always disagreements over how to do it, how to count it. Some thought you should just count total medals. You know, every medal won counts as a point. Gold, silver, bronze, one point for each. Others said, no, 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 no. Golds have to be more valuable than silvers, which should count more than a bronze. The United States dominated track and field. And so the American Olympic Committee argued that track and field medals should be worth more in an overall medal count. Everyone else thought this was absurd. They said all medals are equal. A fencing medal should be worth the same as a medal for the 100-meter dash. Some smaller nations, they thought that the only real fair way to do this was to calculate medals per capita. So establish a ratio of gold medals per se every million inhabitants. You know, otherwise the big nations will always win the medal count. That's kind of an interesting idea. And so you know, under this proposal, the winner of the medal count at the 2016 Rio Olympics, it would have been the Bahamas. They won one gold medal with a population of 388,000. Anyway, Olympic officials, they refused to endorse one system or another, but then this became a huge deal in the context of the Cold War. The U.S. and the USSR, they were talking a lot of smack, we need a winner. What eventually evolved was an unofficial medal count, where a nation got three points for a gold, two for a silver, and one for a bronze. That's how the press was calculating it. And I think this is reasonable. So let's apply this to Helsinki. 
At the 1952 games, the Soviets got out to an early lead in the medal count on the strength of their female athletes. Some Americans actually complained about this. They said women's sports should not be part of the medal count. Well, sorry, macho man, they count. The United States team stormed back based on their domination of the track and field events. And there was one event here that I want to mention the 3,000-meter steeplechase. Because, come on, when do you ever get the opportunity to hear a dude talk about the steeplechase? Do you even know what the steeplechase is? Uh, You would be forgiven if you do not. Uh, But the steeplechase is awesome. The steeplechase is an obstacle course where humans basically mimic horses. The the name comes from old Irish horse races, where horse and rider, they raced from one village to another village, with the church steeple in those villages serving as markers. Pretty soon, humans did the races without horses, you know, running from village to village themselves, jumping over stone walls, running through shallow ponds. And that's what the modern steeplechase mimics. It's a 3,000-meter race inside the track, so almost two miles. There are 35 waist-high hurdles that do not topple, and seven of them are followed by water pits, water pits that are shallow but 12 feet long. And for these, the runners, they go over a barrier, they splash into the water, and then they dig themselves out and they continue. It's an awesome event. They started competing in the steeplechase at the Olympics way back in 1900. And though I suspect they were into the event in places like Ireland, but not in the United States. Nobody cared about the steeplechase in the United States until 1952. In 1952, the 3,000-meter steeplechase featured a Cold War matchup that even a Hollywood screenwriter could not have come up with. There were a dozen entrants in this 1952 race, but all eyes were on two of them. There was Horace Ashenfelter, the American. Okay, fine, I suppose a Hollywood screenwriter could come up with a better name, um, Kip Waterman or something like that. But his name was Horace Ashenfelter. Ashenfelter was a a clean-cut G-man. He he was an FBI agent, a symbol of American domestic security during the Cold War. The man hunted communists. Racing against him was Vladimir Kazentsov, a communist. Kazentsov was a Soviet Red Army hero. He had been wounded in action defending the Soviet Union against the Nazi invasion. And now here he was in 1952, the world record holder in the event. So it was the Soviet soldier against the American FBI agent, and going into the final lap of this grueling race, it was the Soviet, Kazentsev, who was far ahead. But then Ashenfelter made his move. He got nearly even. And the Olympic Stadium crowd, it was in in a frenzy. Almost everyone was rooting for the American. Remember, these games were in Finland and the Soviets had invaded Finland during the war. So it was a pro-American and anti-Soviet crowd. As the steeplechasers splashed down in the final water pit, the the Soviet, Kazentsev, he was slightly ahead, 
But then it was as if the American had rocket boosters on him. I mean, Ashenfelter, you can find the video, Ashenfelter just shot out of the water with shocking power, and he sprinted first to the finish line. It was an American victory. And Ashenfelter received personal congratulations from his boss, J. Edgar Hoover. And this steeplechaser was an American hero. A steeplechaser. Because again, this wasn't really the steeplechase. This was the Cold War. And Ashenfelter, he helped propel the United States to a victory in the medal count. Using our 3-2-1 scoring system, the Americans won the medal count 175 points to the Soviet Union's 145. So this was an American victory. But the United States was a longtime Olympic veteran. The, the Soviets were Olympic rookies. It was not nearly as big a victory as many Americans expected. And the medal count would change four years later, in 1956. As I told you, the 1956 Games, they were in Melbourne, Australia, the, the site of the bloody pool. And with four years more training behind them, the Soviets routed the Americans. Soviet athletes won more of every kind of medal. They won more gold, more silver, and more bronze. The final tally was 201 for the Soviets, 163 for the United States. And this medal count loss at the Olympic Games, it unleashed a lot of soul-searching in the United States. American leaders said, we need to do better. And let's talk about what came next, because if you grew up in the United States, what happened next had an effect on your life. American leaders decided that if they wanted to compete with the Soviet sports machine, and that's how the USSR was described in the United States, as possessing an almost inhuman sports machine. Well, American leaders decided that something had to change. You know, the 1956 Olympic Games suggested, demonstrated, that the Soviets were stronger than the Americans, that the Americans were weaker than the Soviets. And one of the culprits, some argued in this country, they said, the problem is our national wealth. Critics pointed to the affluence of American culture, and they argued that American children, young people, they were spoiled. They were soft. And I think this is really interesting because American affluence, you know, American material affluence, it was usually held up as a sign of American superiority to the Soviets. You know, our powerful automobiles and our modern kitchen appliances, the widespread availability of these creature comforts, comforts that most Soviet citizens did not have. These things were evidence, people said, of the superiority of the American system. But all of a sudden, a different argument was being made. I mean, the exact opposite argument was being made. Now, all of a sudden, the argument was that all of this affluence it had made us weak. You know, sitting in their air-conditioned homes, eating TV dinners, drinking Coca-Cola and watching Howdy Doody, this had made American children soft. And so in response, you get a Cold War push to whip American schoolchildren into shape. And it came straight from the top. 
President Dwight Eisenhower created the President's Council on Youth Fitness. And this was a direct response to the belief that American children were less fit than their Soviet counterparts. And the goal was to encourage and foster physical fitness among young Americans. Push-ups, pull-ups, the standing broad jump. You know, this would all now be part of the everyday school curriculum of American children, just like math or spelling. Did you do the presidential fitness test as a kid in elementary school? Well, that's where it comes from. It was created in the 1950s as a way to mold American school children into future Olympic athletes. We need to win the Cold War Olympic medal count against the Soviets. We need to toughen up American kids. So let's test them. Let's challenge them in sports. I vividly remember, I had my certificate from Jimmy Carter, attesting to the fact that I could achieve a certain standard in five events. Though, I'm going to come clean right now, right here, right now, with the microphone in front of me and the recorder on. I want to admit that I cheated on the pull-ups. I didn't think it was fair that you had to do the pull-ups front-handed, you know, with your knuckles facing you. So a pull-up and not an underhanded chin-up. I could do chin-ups, but for some reason I could not do pull-ups. So I lied about my number. I, I know, it's terrible. But in my defense, this was the mid-1970s. You know, I did all this in the shadow of Watergate, so I think it's justifiable. But my point right now is not that I lied to my government. My point is that those tests were a direct response to the Cold War and the athletic threat posed by the Soviet Union. In the name of winning the Cold War Olympics and, and demonstrating to the world the superiority of the American system, Johnny and Sally need to be more fit than Sergei and Svetlana. Here's another more long-lasting result of the Soviet performance at the Olympic Games in the 1950s. You know, since medal counts did not discriminate based on sex, Americans realized that they needed to do a much better job developing women's sports. A gold medal won by a female athlete, it counted for three points, just like a gold medal won by a male athlete. The Soviet Union and the other Eastern European nations, they had developed their women's sports programs. They were far ahead of the United States when it came to funding women's sports. They actually cared about women's sports in the Soviet Union, those crazy communists. And now the United States needed to catch up. You know, in American history, sometimes progress comes from unpredictable places. And that is the case here. As losing the Cold War medal count, it prompted Americans to start to care about and invest in their female athletes, and even black female athletes. That's what happened. That The Cold War took the black female athlete, uh, an individual who lived in almost absolute obscurity in the American sports world, and because of the Cold War, those athletes were supported and they became national heroes. They became celebrated cold warriors. The best example here is a young black woman from Tennessee, Wilma Rudolph. The story of Wilma Rudolph, it's one of those stories that just makes you proud to be a human being. 
You know, Wilma Rudolph was born in 1940 in Clarksville, Tennessee, and she was the 20th of 22 children. I mean, so her, her mother deserves a gold medal. When she was six years old, Wilma was diagnosed with, with polio, and she spent a full year in bed, a whole year. And then her legs, they were placed into cumbersome metal braces. And every night, her mother would come home from her job as a maid and massage her daughter's aching legs late into the evening. At age 12, Wilma Rudolph finally got to remove these braces, and she exercised as a way of overcoming her disability. After years of being pent up in those braces, her speed was unleashed. Have you ever read the book or, or seen the film, probably Forrest Gump? Young Forrest is saddled with cumbersome leg braces, which one day he sheds, and it is revealed that he is a tremendous runner. Well, the author of the book, Winston Groom, he got his inspiration for that storyline from Wilma Rudolph. Rudolph went to Tennessee State, and she ran for the Tennessee State Tiger Bells, a mix of tigers and southern bells. And these Tiger Bells, they dominated the next Cold War Olympic Games, the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome. Wilma Rudolph in particular, she dominated. She won three gold medals, the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and the four by 100 meter relay. Wilma Rudolph was the American star of the 1960 Summer Olympics. The press, they followed her everywhere. Men too, uh, including a young, love-struck American boxer who also won a gold medal there, Cassius Clay, soon to go by the name Muhammad Ali. Clay was infatuated with Wilma Rudolph. She said that Clay talked too much. It was more than just rising national support for black female athletes. Some, here's something else that happened. Some of the longtime, widely held disparaging views about African-American women in general, they began to change as well. You know, the, the, the propaganda coming from both the United States Olympic Committee and the American press, they suddenly worked very hard to accentuate the grace and the beauty and the, the femininity of black female athletes, especially in comparison to what that same American press, for example, called the mannishness of their Soviet and Eastern European counterparts. You may be familiar with that you know, tired stereotype, Russian and Eastern European female athletes. They were described over and over in the American press as hairy, thick-thighed, unattractive Siberian women, more man than woman. I mean, that was the Cold War narrative. But by contrast, Wilma Rudolph and the other Tennessee State Tiger Bells, for example, they were suddenly being celebrated as graceful, beautiful, and feminine beings. It's in the context of the Cold War that the femininity of these black American athletes was suddenly being emphasized as a counterpoint to the stereotype of mannish Soviet female athletes. And I want to impress upon you, for an American culture that had long described black women in terribly demeaning ways, describing black women as anything but feminine and beautiful, I think this marked a significant change in thinking. You know, here's an interesting term. Oval tracks, 
They're made of crushed cinder. So some creative soul came up with the idea of calling the black female Olympic track stars in 1960 Cinderella's, right? a name that suggested their beauty, their femininity. In the context of the Cold War, the once ignored and marginalized black female athletes, they had become the Cinderella's of sport. And of course, Wilma Rudolph, well, she was the ultimate Cinderella with her remarkable rise from illness and poverty to international glory and fame. For half a century, Americans defined themselves in opposition to the Soviets. We are what they are not. Americans are the opposite of Soviets, and Soviets the opposite of Americans. That was the mindset. And nowhere did this contrast play out more publicly than at the Olympic Games. There never was a military battle between the United States and the Soviet Union, and we can be very thankful for that. So the Olympic Games, they were the next best thing, you know, where every four years, Americans and Soviets, they waged a different type of physical battle. The medal count, it would flip-flop back and forth. You know, by 1968, the United States was back on top, but then the Soviets, they came roaring back in 1972. Cold War tensions, they were exacerbated in the 1980s when the United States boycotted the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. This was due to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Four years later, the Soviets, they boycotted the 1984 Los Angeles Summer Olympic Games in revenge. Americans and Soviets, they would face off one more time in the Olympics in 1988. But then in 1989, it all came to an end. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in college. I was watching it all unfold on CNN. A revolution in Budapest in the summer of 1989. The Berlin Wall crumbling overnight in November of that same year. Then the Soviet Union itself collapsing a year later. And when the Soviet Union dissolved, well, I, I admit it, my first thought was not, hooray, let freedom ring. My very first thought was, but what about the Olympics? You can't have the Olympics without the Soviet Union. I mean, without the Soviet Union, what's the point of the Olympic Games? Uh, shoot, but without the Cold War, what's the point of even being an American? This is American Sport. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode of American Sport and want to learn more, visit our website, americansportpodcast.com. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, share, and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. American Sport was created by me, Matt Andrews, and is an original podcast from Trailblazer Studios, executive produced by Katie Roan, co-produced by Casey Helmick, and Aurelia Belfield. You can find American Sport wherever you get your podcasts.